Strong Tower Bible Church. This is a wonderful day and time and moment to bless the Lord and worship him, even in a cyber way, because the Lord is with you. He's with me. He's with our family and we're still together. So can we thank God, even though we're not in the sanctuary together? Our hearts are sanctuary and God lives inside of us. So this has been a wonderful season of being reminded of that fact that God does not dwell in buildings made by hands, but he does dwell in people that he has made after his own image. So let's worship him in spirit and in truth. Psalm 118 verse 21 says, I will praise you for you have answered me and have become my salvation. So strong tower. If the Lord is your salvation, it's time to praise him. If the Lord has ever answered your prayers, it's time to worship him. So I invite you in. Let's enjoy the Lord and worship him together. Amen. As we come to the portion of our worship service where we hear from God, as we open up the holy book, let us pray and ask the Lord to Speak to us through scripture. Father God, thank you for being a good God, for being the only God, for being a loving God, for being an intimate God. Thank you, Lord, that when we're going through trouble, you tell us that you're a very present help for us. Thank you that you are a refuge, a fortress, a strong tower. Thank you, Lord, as the old folks used to say, you sit high, but you surely look low. Lord, we need you, and we're so glad that we have you. And Lord, we pray that you would speak in this hour that we might be stabilized by truth. We grab the belt of truth. We pick up the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. And we open up our hearts to you, Lord, saying, speak. Let God be true. And every man a liar. Lord, give me the boldness that you gave to Paul when he asked the church at Ephesus to pray for him, that he might have boldness in the spirit to proclaim the gospel. Help me, Lord, to preach the gospel now that you might be glorified and that the church might be edified and Satan and the hounds of hell might be horrified. For I ask it all in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Several weeks ago, I presented to our team the staff, and those who are in the worship ministry in particular, the series in which I would be um, preaching through. Several weeks ago, I, I did that because when I can come up with the series ahead of time, it helps those who are putting together the worship, putting together the videos, to be able to chart where we're going and to prepare in advance and so there's a good thing in doing that. You know, the Bible says that man devises the way. So it's a good thing to devise the sermon series, but we must also keep in mind that the scripture also says that after man devises the way, 
God directs the steps. So although I may place the sermon series down in paper and uh, in pencil, um, there comes a time every now and then where you have to erase what you wrote in pencil because the Lord is giving you an audible. He, he's making an adjustment. And so as I come to today, June 14th, on our sermon calendar from the Trust Me series, because I felt like it was important for us to really build and bolster our faith in God during this season from the pandemic and everything that is happening right now by way of seeing racism uprooted in our country. I felt that Trust Me was a good series for us. And today I am supposed to speak a message entitled Trust Me When I Don't Heal on this side. So that uh, was the prescribed pre-planned message for today taken from 2 Timothy chapter 4 verse 20 where Paul says Erastus stayed in Corinth but Trophimus I have left sick in Miletus. And so that was the passage that I had picked out weeks ago for today. And as I came to this passage to study for the sermon, I looked at the passage and I said, Lord, how can a passage like this be a blessing to our people right now? With all that's going on in the world, uh, it just doesn't seem right for me to talk about when you choose not to heal someone of a sickness and how we should trust you um, if you choose not to heal in this life. I said, Lord, how can that kind of a sermon be a blessing to our people right now when we when we need a right now word to deal with all the stuff that we're going through in society and as I began to pray I felt the spirit of the Lord whisper to me he said exegete the passage exegete the passage in other words do inductive bible study on 2 Timothy 4, verse 20. And the Lord reminded me that in the court of law, they are supposed to allow the evidence to lead them to a conclusion of guilt or innocence. That's how it's supposed to be. Follow the evidence, follow the facts, and let the facts determine whether or not someone is guilty or innocent. And we know that doesn't always happen because people reach a conclusion no matter what the facts and the evidence say. And when you're doing biblical exegesis, you just let the text lead you to where the conclusion is. You don't make up the conclusion or read into the text what you want it to say. You let the text tell you what it says. And you adjust your sermon or your belief based on scripture. So I listened to the voice of the spirit and I began to exegete or do inductive Bible study on 2 Timothy 4 verse 20. And I started off by doing a word study on the man Trophimus. Because Paul is saying I had to leave him sick in Miletus. So the best way to study the Bible is to ask questions of the Bible 
And then you go about trying to find answers from the Bible. Why? Because the best interpreter of scripture is scripture itself. Let the Bible interpret the Bible. So I began to look up Trophimus in the scriptures and it led me over to Acts chapter 20 and that's where I want to lead you this morning. Let's begin in Acts chapter 20 beginning at verse 1. Reading from the New King James Version, the Bible says, After the uproar had ceased, uproar, what uproar? There was a riot in Ephesus. Ephesus was one of the major cities of Asia Minor. Paul had went there on his second missionary journey, and he had stayed in Ephesus for over two years, preaching the gospel and leading men and women to Christ. As a matter of fact, in Exodus 19.10, it says, And this continued for two years, so that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. That's very important. And so there was an uproar that happened in the city because of the gospel. People were being saved, Jews and Gentiles coming to faith in Christ. There was an uproar. But Chapter 20, verse 1 says that after the uproar had ceased, Paul called the disciples to himself, embraced them, and departed to go to Macedonia. Now, when he had gone over that region and encouraged them with many words, he came to Greece and stayed three months. And when the Jews plotted against him as he was about to sail to Syria, he decided to return through Macedonia. And Sopater of Berea accompanied him to Asia. Also Aristarchus and Secundus of the Thessalonians and Gaius of Derbe and Timothy and Tychicus and Trophimus of Asia. These men going ahead waited for us at Troas. So we see here that Trophimus is from Asia. No doubt we're going to see in the next passage from the city of Ephesus, which was in Asia Minor. So Trophimus is from Asia, from Ephesus, no doubt converted as a result of the ministry of the Apostle Paul in Ephesus. He gave his life to Jesus as an Ephesian, as a Gentile, as a Greek. He made a profession of faith in this Hebrew Messiah. Jesus changed his life. When, when Trophimus heard the gospel, it penetrated his heart and he became born again, even to the point where now he wanted to become a missionary. And after no doubt being discipled by Paul, he becomes part of Paul's cohort, part of Paul's band of gospel globe trotters. So this man, new in his faith, is following the aged and rugged apostle Paul. And so we see this in the book of Acts chapter 20. So who is Trophimus? He's a Gentile believer who has just become a missionary and he's following the greatest missionary of all time, the Apostle Paul. But there's more. Let's go over to Acts chapter 21. And I'll begin reading at verse 17 and we will spend the lion's share of our time right here in this passage because there's much for us to gain. Trophimus is mentioned in this passage, but in order for us to really appreciate who he is, I've got to begin reading the context 
at verse 17. Acts 21, verse 17, and the Bible says, And when we had come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. Stop and pause. Paul wanted to go back into Jerusalem, even though many of his friends, even a prophet named Agabus had told him, don't go into Jerusalem because people are wanting to kill you there. It's a hostile environment. Um, and so Paul still felt led and compelled to go to Jerusalem. So when Luke, who's writing the, the book of Acts, says that we returned into Jerusalem, he's speaking about that band of missionaries that would hang with Paul, of which one was Trophimus. So Acts 17, when we had come to Jerusalem, remember this hostile community, this violent uh, hotbed, of, uh, of hostility, the Bible says the brethren received us gladly, speaking of the church, as we're going to see in a moment. Verse 18, on the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. James, when we read of him in the book of Acts, which is a historical book that bridges the gospels over to the epistles, that tells us about the uh, formation of the local church. James, who is the Lord's brother, who would later become a follower of Christ, um, he saw the risen Christ. James, the Lord's brother, becomes a Christian, and he becomes the, the, the chief spokesman, or what we would call today the lead pastor or the senior pastor of the church in Jerusalem. And there are other scriptures that would support this premise, but I pray that you'll trust me enough to, to, to go with me that James, when the Bible highlights James, James is the foremost leader of the church in Jerusalem, the first church, the mother church, and, uh, and he is surrounded with his elders. So Paul is going to the leadership of the church. He goes to James and the elders. Verse 19, when he had greeted them, he told in detail those things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. So when Paul comes, he's reporting back to the mother church. He's reporting to the leaders of the church in Jerusalem. Paul, who was a man of authority, was also a man who was under authority. Because earlier in the book of Acts, he had gone to the church leaders in Jerusalem, of which James was leading at that time, to be able to deal with the issue of Gentiles coming into the kingdom by grace through faith in Jesus Christ, now being unified with Jewish believers. And so you have two different ethnicities coming together, two different cultures, and for the Jews, a different religious background and understanding that is now being merged with Gentiles. So as you can imagine, it's one thing to be spiritual, but man, we've got to work through these differences that we have as spiritual people. So the Jerusalem Council in Acts chapter 15 had to set up some standards and guidelines in terms of all of the Gentiles who were coming into the local church. And Paul was known as the apostle to the Gentiles. Peter was known as the apostle to the Jews. Yes, they ministered to everyone, but they had a particular niche or dare I say anointing to, re to reach a certain group of people. And Paul, who was Jewish, he had a way with Gentiles uh, that, that Peter did not possess. So he was gifted 
and his ministry was blessed in reaching Gentiles. So therefore, he was called the apostle to the Gentiles and the early church leaders, the pillars, Peter, James and John extended to Paul the right hand of fellowship. They, they or authorized his ministry. They got behind him and said, Paul, we are with you. We only ask that you remember the poor. Paul said, that's the very thing I'm eager to do as I go forth and I reach the world, especially Gentiles with the life-saving message of Jesus. So they, they, they know what Paul does. Paul would go into synagogues. He was a synagogue buster. That was his mode of ministry operation. But by going in the synagogues, he would often be rejected by Jewish people. Then he would go out into the community and he would find more receptivity from Gentiles than he did from his own people, the Jews. So that would be his methodology as he would plant churches and share the gospel. He would stop and start rather in the synagogues and then it would spread out into the broader community. So although the communities were mixed racially with Jews and Gentiles in the world at that time, Jews and Gentiles did not have any dealings. They didn't have fellowship. So the church, this new thing that was being birthed, was putting Jews and Gentiles not only together, but also on the same plane before God and one another. So the gospel, the church, was radical at that time. And it should be radical now. But hold on. So they go, Paul goes, and he tells them in details what God had been doing among the Gentiles through his ministry. Verse 20, and when they heard it, they glorified the Lord. So they heard good news. They heard what the good news did for people, that Gentiles, people who were uh, worshiping idols and, and, and pagan deities, they came out of darkness and into the marvelous light, became born again, followers of Jesus Christ. So they heard what the good news did. And the Bible says they glorified the Lord and they said to him, you see, brother, how many myriads of Jews there are who have believed and they are all zealous for the law. Uh, uh, hold on, strong tower. Hold on one second. Here, Paul is coming to the mother church, the church in Jerusalem, to speak to the senior pastor and his elders about how the gospel is going forth and saving Gentiles, because that's what Jesus commanded the early disciples. Go into all the world and preach the gospel. Make disciples of every nation. So this is the will of Jesus, to be all-inclusive. He so loved the world. And so the church is being sent forth into the world. But we know there was much resistance about seeing those people come to faith in Christ. There was much resistance about those people now coming into community with us. No matter what Jesus said, our racism, our tradition, our culture, our fears, our religion has greater authority than the actual words and commands of Jesus Christ. And so Paul is now testing that spirit of religion when he tells the guys, man, Gentiles are coming in. They celebrate, but then they change the subject. What do you mean they changed the subject? They started talking about the myriads of Jews who are believing and how they're zealous for the law. I've got two problems with this. Number one, we're not talking about Jews right now. 
We're talking about Gentiles right now. We're not talking about the Jews. We've been talking about the Jews. We can go back to Acts chapter 2. Man, we can go all the way back to Nahum and Obadiah. We've been talking about the Jews for centuries. We love the Jews. There's a time and a place to talk about the Jews. But right now, we're talking about the Gentiles who are being grafted into the vine of Jesus Christ. We're talking about the Gentiles who are turning from worshiping the moon God and they're worshiping the God who made the moon. We're talking about the Gentiles. Who are, leaving lives of, who are leaving lives of lasciviousness and they're coming to a faith in Christ that's changed them. We're talking about the Gentiles right now, not the Jews. So when we have to insert the dominant group spiritually at this time, the Jews were the dominant group spiritually, we have to insert them into the narrative because they feel threatened that they're not being included because Gentiles are being uplifted. Do you see where I'm going? Yes, we know all lives matter. But in America, black lives have not always mattered. And so when we say black lives matter, we're not saying that no one else matters or that we matter more. We're just saying that we matter because we've been treated like we don't matter for hundreds of years. So as we say black lives matter in a redemptive manner to bring attention to as well as to uplift and to honor and to fight for from a place of justice for black lives, that is not saying that white lives do not matter. No, no, no. We're just saying black lives matter right now, okay? It's our turn to say this right now. But when you insert all lives matter, or when you try to insert white lives matter, you're missing the point. And here we see the early church they just couldn't celebrate the fact that Gentiles mattered. They had to remind Paul, hey, hey, Jews matter too. They're coming to Christ too. And not only that, here's the second thing I have a problem with. The Bible says that these Jews who are coming in, they're zealous for the law. Mm. I got a problem with that. Shouldn't they be zealous for Jesus? Shouldn't they be zealous about the grace and the mercy and the love of God? But they're coming into the kingdom whereby they are embracing Jesus and continuing to maintain their grip on Moses. Moses is good. Moses is a he was a prophet of God. But as we look at Paul's writings in the New Testament, which help shape our theology, Paul lets us know that the purpose of Moses's ministry was to lead us to Jesus Christ. The purpose of the law, which is good and right and holy, the law reminds sinners that we can't keep the law and we need someone to keep the law for us. That's Jesus. The law leads us to Jesus. And Jesus lets us know that we're not to live by the 613 Old Testament laws that speak of societal laws and uh, uh, Levitical laws. No, no, we're to live by two laws. Love God, love your neighbor. Hang all of the other laws on those laws. Hang the Ten Commandments on the two laws of loving God and loving your neighbor. Jesus simplified everything under love. And so the law is holy, but we don't live by the law. We live by love. We don't throw the law out, but we don't let it rule us either. And for the Jews, this would be hard because for centuries, they lived their lives by the law. They thought they kept it. They couldn't admit that they broke it. 
and they couldn't admit their need for a savior who fulfilled the law perfectly and died and rose again for lawbreakers. So they wanted to, to come to Jesus, but they wanted to hold on to their circumcision and all of the dietary things, the things that they ascribe righteousness to. And so Paul had to deal with that throughout his ministry in the book of Philippians, where he had to say to the Jews that it's not about circumcision of the body. It's about a cutting of the heart, that a true Jew is one of the heart, not of the body. So you can't trust in your ancestral father, Abraham, to make you right with God. You can only trust in Jesus, a descendant of Abraham, to make you right with God. And when the Gentiles come in, do not put this burden on them of the law. Peter said this, that we nor our fathers could keep. May they walk and grow in freedom and in the love of God. And so we see here that the people with James said, yeah, the Jews are coming. They're believing and they're zealous for the law. That's a problem. Hang with me. Don't go anywhere. Don't change the channel. Verse 21. But they have been informed about you. Speaking of Paul. That you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying that they ought, to, ought not to circumcise their children, nor to walk according to the customs. So James and the elders, they hijacked that Holy Ghost moment where Paul is giving a report of the Gentiles coming by faith. They hijack it. And they uplift what's going on with the Jews, how they're zealous for the law and how there are rumors being spread that Paul is telling people to forsake Moses and not circumcise their children and not walk or live according to the Hebraic customs. And I just want to know when James and the elders heard these rumors about Paul, what did they do? Sound like they didn't uh, stop the rumors or answer the rumors with what is true. It sounds like they believed the rumors that they heard. But let's dig into this a little bit. Paul didn't have a problem with Moses. Paul understood the purpose of Moses. Again, as I mentioned, Moses had a purpose to lead people to Jesus Christ through the law because people can't keep the law. And that the customs are okay. If you want to circumcise your children, circumcise your children. But do not try to say that circumcision is a right to spiritual experience with God. Or that it is a pathway to knowing God. No, no, if you want to circumcise, circumcise. But don't make Gentiles have to circumcise their children. Because circumcision, as Paul would say, whether you're circumcised or not, it doesn't mean anything. The only thing that matters is faith expressing itself through love. So when people heard Paul preaching the gospel, they got defensive for Moses. And I'm sitting here saying, should not James and the elders in Jerusalem been preaching the same gospel that Paul was preaching? But they left Paul out there to, to dry. They, they hung him out to dry. Because if Paul is being persecuted for preaching the gospel, in other words, I'm lifting Jesus up so high that, man, we can't even see Moses. Nothing against Moses, but, man, it's about Jesus Christ, the one that Moses prophesied about, that a prophet greater than me is coming, Deuteronomy 18. And when he came, we're lifting him up. We're just not lifting up Moses on his plane because no man, not even Moses, is worthy to be compared with Jesus. Jesus. 
and his finished work at Calvary. Why wasn't the early church zealous for the gospel? Mm. Hang with me. Don't go anywhere. So they said in verse 22, what then? The assembly must certainly meet. We got to have a meeting. Church always want to have meetings. For they will hear that you have come. Therefore, do what we tell you. We have four men who have taken a vow. Take them and be purified with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads and that all may know that those things of which they were informed concerning you are nothing, but that you yourself also walk orderly and keep the law? Are you kidding me? So the church has this novel idea. Paul, we're thinking more about those people than what Jesus said. We, we, we want to somehow pacify the haters, the, these Judaizers, these Jews who say they have Jesus but also have Moses. They're holding on to the law. And, and here's the thing about law. Law doesn't change you. It reveals what you are. It reveals the murder that's in each heart if you focus on the law. Because when the law says don't do something, everything in you wants to break the law. And so the law shows that we're murderous. And just like the Pharisees that Jesus had to deal with, he called them murderers, just like their father, Satan, from the beginning. Because when there's an emphasis on law, you don't care about people. You don't care about the spirit of the law. The only thing that matters to you is bloodshed in the name of your God. And we're going to see that these people have no problem killing folks. They have no problem uh, uh, being derogatory against people. That's what law does. It makes you mean spirited. It makes you a murderer when you focus on and live by the law. There's no grace in your heart to listen to people because when you live by the law, you have to be right and everybody else is wrong. And so these people, uh, the, 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 the elders and James say, let's try to appease these folks. And this is what we want you to do. Go to the temple with four men who have made a vow. They, they've shaved their head. We want you to go with them as a sign of solidarity that you are not against Jewish customs. You are not against the law. You're a law keeper. So what did Paul do? Again, he, he's a humble man and he submits to this leadership even though it's bad counsel. So every church, we, we don't always give good counsel to the people. But Paul, there's safety in submission. And Paul submits to this uh, bogus wisdom and insight and the Bible says in verse 25 but concerning the Gentiles who believe we have written and decided that they should observe no such thing except that they should keep themselves from things offered to idols from blood from things strangled and from sexual immorality again that was covered in Acts 15 verse 26 then Paul took the men in the next day having been purified with them entered the temple so purified with them means Paul shaved his hair off just like these men so they're hoping that this physical demonstration of their hair being shaved, fasting, being in the temple day after day after day would communicate some sort of penance and again, a commitment to Hebraic rules and customs. So that's the idea is a bad idea because it's not going to work. And the Bible says in verse 26 that they were to announce the expiration of the days of purification at which time an offering should be made for each one of them. Now, when the seven days were almost ended, 
the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, men of Israel, help. This is the man who teaches all men everywhere against the people, the law and this place. And furthermore, he also brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. Verse 29, parenthetical comment. For they had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian with him in the city whom they supposed that Paul had brought into the temple. Do you see this? You see what's happening? Paul follows the leadership of James and the elders. It's bad wisdom, but he submits to it. He shaves his head. He keeps the vow with these other four men. They're in the temple worshiping as a sign of their public penance and that Paul ascribes to Judaism to the strictest form. Doesn't work because when people want blood, they don't care what you're doing to try to appease them. The only thing that will appease them is your blood, not even your conformity. It's too late for that. And so these bullies come against Paul. They stir up the whole crowd. In other words, they, they, they make the crowd riotous and rebellious. They, they lay hands on Paul. And they say that this is the man who's against the people. He's against the law and he's against the temple. He's against this place. And so the masses, the multitude, the majority, they're ganging up on Paul. And the Bible says in verse 29, they make a false accusation. And they say that they had seen a man named Trophimus who was hanging out with Paul. They saw him in the city and they supposed that Paul had taken him into the temple. When I read the word, they suppose that Paul did that. That's that word assume in our culture. We know what happens when we assume uh, what's going on. And so they say that Paul brought a Gentile past the court of the Gentiles and into the court of the Jews. Because at that time, the, the, the holy place, the temple, it was parsed and segregated. There was an area for Gentiles. There was an area for the women. There was an area for the men. And then as you get into the temple, there was a court for the priests, then an area for the high priest, the holy place, the most holy place behind the veil. But when Jesus died, oh, help me, Holy Ghost. When Jesus died, did not the veil in the temple tear from top to bottom, meaning that all of us have access to God through the blood of Jesus Christ. Not just a priest once a year making atonement because the high priest Jesus Christ came and gave his life as atonement for our sin. So we all have equal access to God to come into the throne room of grace and make our petitions known. I don't need a priest to go for me. I am a priest of God myself. Our sisters are part of the priesthood of believers also because of Jesus Christ. So I don't need a pastor. I don't need a reverend. I don't need a pope to go to God on my behalf I can go on my own in Jesus name there's nothing wrong with having a pastor there's nothing wrong with having a reverend and if you're in the Catholic Church and you're a believer there's nothing wrong with the Pope but I don't need those people to get to God because Jesus made a way for me to go and not only did he make a way for me to get to him by ripping that veil from top to bottom he knocked down the dividing wall of hostility between Jews and Gentiles and men and women 
That's what Ephesians chapter 2 tells us. That Jesus, our Prince of Peace, he knocked down that wall that had segregation signs on it saying no Gentile allowed or enter at your own risk. Jesus knocked that wall down with his cross. Meaning that we are all to come together as we go together to God. But why do men keep erecting things that the Lord has torn down? We put these walls up, not God. We put these walls up, not Jesus. Jesus has knocked them down. But we find ourselves in the rubbish raising this mess up to divide ourselves, creating the hostility between people groups. Oh my God. So the gospel that Paul preached should not James have preached the same gospel? Because as people are getting mad at Paul, shouldn't they have gotten mad at James? As they lay hands on Paul, why didn't they lay hands on James? As they throw Paul in jail, why didn't they lay hands and throw James in jail? Because every era has seen preachers who lack backbone to preach the unadulterated gospel of Jesus Christ. There are more preachers concerned with feathering their nests as opposed to preaching the gospel in the temple and making a, a, a whip and driving out the money chain. They're more concerned with keeping the status quo, making those people happy while making the heart of God break. Now, James would grow eventually. We're all in process, right? But at this moment in history, this man is weak. He's a milk toast leader. Man, if they hate Paul, shouldn't they hate you? Don't you guys preach the same Jesus? Don't you preach the same gospel? And when I think about where we are today, there's so many preachers who remain silent, who won't say anything about the conditions of the times. They keep it safe. But yet they want... Oh, they may not even want, but when preachers like me step forward and say, what well, thus saith the Lord, no matter who it may offend or no matter who it may encourage, we speak, thus saith the Lord, because we have an audience of one, and that's God, the one who will judge me. So I really don't care what you think, rich, poor, Democrat, Republican, black, white, Baptist, Pentecostal, I answer to God, not to you. Where are those preachers? Oh, man, they, they, they must be in the pocket of politicians. They must uh, be more committed to denominationalism than the gospel. They're still reading scriptures with these tainted lenses of racism and self-preservation. But I believe God's doing something in this hour where he's exposing the hypocrites. And he's raising up the few who have the fire of God in their bosom and the word of God in their mouth to speak the truth. Because people need truth today, not ear tickling. So where was James? So, so I've retitled this sermon this morning. And it is, trust me, when your own people don't believe the gospel. Trust me, when your own people don't believe the gospel. Because who came after Paul? His own people. Whether they were lost Jews or uh, Jews who had come into the faith but still holding on to Moses, known as Judaizer Christians. So it was his people 
who, tra who trailed him wherever he went, stirring up trouble. They did it here in Jerusalem. It was his people, the Jews, who didn't give him support in the church, the Jerusalem church. And so Paul is out there with his band of brothers who are diverse in ethnicity when his own people don't want to stand for the same gospel that he's willing to give his life for. Let me say this. Sometimes your own people make you ashamed that they're your people. <laughs> Sometimes your own people make you ashamed that they're your people. So let me say this. Everyone who's black is not my brother. No more than everyone who's white is not my enemy. But it's a shame, though, when, when your own people many times are the main people trying to hold you back like crabs in a barrel, not wanting you to succeed and get forward. Uh, much of the, the, the emotional scars I've received as it pertains to race haven't come from white people. It's, it's come from my own people because I choose to associate with white people and the things that they have said about me. Oh, my goodness. I've been called the N-word more by black people, not in jest, but in anger and resentment and bitterness and to tear me down by my own people than by white people. Now, white people may be saying it behind my back, behind closed doors, but it's been the brothers who've been saying it in my face. And so I know that there are white people who are trekking with me, knowing that in your own family, you've got some obstinate relatives who offend you because of their racism. They embarrass you because of their racism. And it's a shame when your own people don't support you and love you and, you and they come against you. And God is saying to us today, trust me when you can't trust your own people. Because we're going to find at the close of this sermon who our people really are. So God says, trust me, trust me. Because you can't follow Jesus and hold to white supremacist values and systems. To embrace one is to reject the other. You see, I believe we are in the era of American history where we are seeing God knock down the 400-year-old tree of white supremacy. You've heard me say that before. I'm going to keep saying it. You know, when the tornado hit Nashville, um, insurance papers call it an act of God. This is not a, a fender bender. This is not a fire in a home. No, this is something that cannot be completely explained, nor could it have been stopped, nor can it be blamed on the negligence of man. What happened was an act of God. And when those kind of things happen, we see how small and helpless we are as humans when God blows a wind by. And trees fell over. Trees that have been uh, resting in Nashville, standing in Nashville for over a hundred years or more. They've been knocked over by the breath of God. God's trying to get the people's attention. He's tearing stuff down so that we can look up to him. So the tornado hits earlier this year. And you've heard me say that when those tornadoes hit those trees and they fell. Ordinary people went and got their chainsaws and cut those trees in pieces so that they could haul them away. And prophetically, John the Baptist says the, the axe is at the root of the tree of injustice. 
The axe is at the root of the tree of systemic oppression. God has cut the tree down. The roots are exposed. And he's about to plant good trees that will bear good fruit. But this tree must be cut down first in John's day and now in our day. God has blown it down. Its roots are exposed. Now we are cutting it up. We're cutting up police brutality. We're cutting up voter fraud and suppression. We're cutting up what's going on with our public schools and the prison industrial complex. We're facing these things. We're cutting this stuff up. Black folks, white folks, Latino folks, Asian folks, native folks, everybody's got their chainsaws. Luke chapter 4 verse 18, the spirit of the Lord is upon me and he's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor and to set the captives free. Micah 6, 8, he has shown you, O man, what is good and what the Lord requires of you to do justice, to, to, to walk humbly with your God. Amos chapter 5, that we're praying for justice to roll down like waters and righteousness like a mighty stream. I've got my chainsaw. I hope you have your chainsaw. Let's cut this tree up because my ancestors have hung from this tree. They died on this tree like strange fruit. Branches have fallen off here and there. But man, we got to get rid of this thing. And if the church is not leading this charge, what are we here for? We're not being salt. We're not being light. We're not being ambassadors. We're not representing Jesus. We're more concerned about our cultural norms and remaining comfortable and quiet. Natalie Grant, who used to be one of my first secretaries at this church. She organized our first gospel choir. She and her husband, Bernie Herms, they recently lost thousands of followers on Instagram because they both had the conviction of conscience to speak out against racism and what happened to George Floyd in Minneapolis. Many of their Christian followers said, stick to singing, uh, leave that social stuff alone. Just saying, shut up and sing. And as a result of them not shutting up, but speaking up, they lost thousands of followers. What a shame. But I then said, you know what? Let's make sure they get a righteous follower for every racist follower that they lost. And then some. Because Natalie and Bernie did the right thing. Oh, we're in the age where the Lord is chopping that tree down. It's down. And now white folks are speaking up. When J.D. Greer, president of the Southern Baptist Convention, urges the SBC to retire a gavel used by a slaveholding Confederacy supporting pastor. There are pastors in the SBC who have a problem with dealing with the customs. Oh, we, we've been doing this all this time. We've been opening up the meetings for, for over 100 years with this gavel. What's the problem now? The problem now is that it was a problem then. And we just had the courage to speak up and say, man, get rid of that gavel. Because the symbolism may make you feel good, but that symbolism with that gavel, it offends black pastors and minority leaders in the SBC. So if your brother is offended, man, put that thing away. Southern Baptist, we need to, to say it clearly as a gospel issue. Black lives matter. Of course black lives matter. Our, our black brothers and sisters are made in the image of God. Black lives matter because Jesus died for them. See, we're, we're dealing with, we're confronting the spirit of whiteness right now. 
And there are white folks who are more concerned about the spirit of whiteness than they are with being a witness for Jesus Christ. But I told you, God is exposing this thing so that we can cut it up and haul it away and build a better society for our children and our children's children. Oh, I wish I had time to tell you about Jerry Falwell, president of my alma mater, and how several weeks ago he had put out a racist tweet uh, aimed at the governor that had a face mask with it, a, a, an image of a Ku Klux Klan man in robe and hood and a white man in blackface. And he did not see how offensive that was to my people and the black people who go to that school or who have gone to that school. So several of us spoke up. We made our voices known. Over 35, 36,000 people signed a petition saying that liberty deserves better and that this man needs to remove that tweet, apologize, and we would have loved to have met with him to walk him through what it means to walk as a believer who has come into a new moment of understanding. Well, Jerry pretty much ignored us, but thanks be to God, there were some people who got a hold of Jerry, talked to Jerry. He offered an arbitrary apology. And you say, Pastor, how do you know it was an arbitrary apology? You can't judge that man's heart. No, I can't judge his heart, but I can look at the fruit. And I also know from scripture, just because you say you're sorry, doesn't mean that you have repented. Saul said that he had sinned, but he never changed. David said, I have sinned, and that man changed, and he was willing to accept the repercussions. But we're seeing this spirit of white supremacy at this Christian university to the point where now black athletes, black students, black professors are leaving in droves. And rather than humbling themselves, repenting and apologizing, they're just saying goodbye, letting these folks go. Because many of these students can find a safer environment at a mainstream or secular school than they can find in a Christian school. Oh, I wish you could hear me this morning. When the president of the United States announces that his first rally since the pandemic is going to be held in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Because if you know your history, Tulsa was once home to Black Wall Street where blacks owned their own businesses and they were making social advancement and they were moving upward on their own without help from white people. But you don't know about that place because it was bombed by our government. And that's where this man is going at a time like this. And during Juneteenth, where black people celebrate uh, the ending of slavery. And I don't believe he's going there to uplift Black folks, I believe he's going there to signal his base, much of which are white evangelicals who believe what he believes, that we are inferior. You know, uh, we are the SOBs who need to be taken off the football field when we kneel in peaceful protest. We're SOBs. But the people who show up at the courthouse with guns and rifles and, and the people who, who let their voices be known and, and run over people at rallies in Charlottesville, those are good people. Y'all, God is exposing this mess. And we need to decide what side of history, beyond history, what side of the kingdom we're going to be on. Are we with the kingdom of light or are we with the kingdom of darkness? There's no choice for me. There's only one choice for me. That's the kingdom of light. Oh, my goodness.
And on Tuesday in Nashville, 11 state uh, uh, lawmakers voted to keep the Nathan Bedford Forest bust in the state capitol, 11 to 5. They slipped that vote in under the radar and they voted to maintain this symbol of white supremacy and racism in the state capitol building at such a time as this. So that speaks of the boldness of the spirit of racism. So if the church is not equally bold with the spirit of righteousness, if not more, they will think they can keep doing these kinds of things and getting away. Because the thing about racism, you can't hug it away. You really can't even vote it away. You got to confront it away. We got to cast this thing out and we got to put our knee on this spirit and not let it up to breathe. But where the saints at who got some backbone, some Holy Ghost conviction, who are tired of this mess? Oh, I know we got some a strong tower Bible church. Can the church say amen? God don't need a whole lot of people to change society. He had 300 dogs with Gideon who took out the enemy and they were over 170,000 people. But 300 put them to flight because God in one person, they are a, a majority. Oh, man, I'm with God. I'm with God. I'm with God. And in Williamson County. We see that there is this. Symbol of hate on the county seal, the Confederate flag, placed there in 1968, during a time when Martin Luther King had been assassinated, during a time where there had been black advancement through the Voting Rights Act and through the Civil Rights Act. No, this was an affront against black progression to say in Williamson County that I don't care what's going on in Washington, D.C., here the Confederacy rules, even though they lost the war. They rule here in Williamson County. And that thing has sat there for 51, 52 years now. But thank God for Dustin Cockton. Yo, D-man, Dustin standing up to say this is not right. And this is a white brother using his access and privilege to say that it's wrong. When we get more white folks doing that, we'll see these systems crumble and fall. Thank God that Dustin is not by himself. We stand with him. In the Bible belt, all these southern Christians who don't have the courage of conviction to stand with us, they'll remain silent and, oh, leave that alone. That's our history. Yeah, it's our history, but it doesn't need to be in our face. Put it in a museum somewhere. Put a symbol in the seal that is representative of where we are today, just like they put up that representation of racism back in the day. That's not who we are anymore. New day is coming. Racism is falling. Williamson County. Oh, oh, I, 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 you know, I'm going to stop right here because I was going to go into Alexander Stevens, the vice president of the Confederate States of America. But you do some research this week. I want you to read his cornerstone speech that he gave uh, not many months after the South had seceded from the Union. And I want you to read the cornerstone speech. And see how within it, he said as the leader, one of the leaders of the Confederacy, he promoted the supremacy of the white race. Who invented that word? White people invented that word, white and race. He promoted white supremacy and the inferiority of black people and that black people were cursed to a life of servitude. 
Oh boy. And, and then find out why it's called cornerstone. And if you don't see the blasphemy in what he did, come talk to me and I'll show you. So why are Christians supporting hatred and bigotry like this? Don't talk about they were men of the times. No, there were a lot of men, white men, who didn't agree with the Confederacy and their philosophy of life. And there are white men now who don't agree with that stuff, don't agree with that evil. My God. God loves white people, but he hates white supremacy. White supremacy is what Paul calls a doctrine of demons in 1 Timothy chapter 4. Beginning at verse one, Paul says, now the spirit expressly says that in latter times, we're in those times now, some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own consciences seared with a hot iron. So there are doctrines of demons and white supremacy. If there ever was a demonic doctrine, it's that doctrine. The reason we know the devil is behind it, because it always involves stealing, killing and destroying. That's his three pronged approach. That's white supremacy. White supremacy steals, it kills and it destroys. And it's a demonic doctrine and people who support it have their consciences seared. God prioritizes the kingdom. He does not prioritize whiteness. Don't let whiteness ruin your witness. Paul suffered the most in life and ministry from his own people, the Jews. Yet he did not allow their hatred for him or their hatred for the Gentiles to keep him from preaching and living the gospel. So to my white brothers and sisters, as I close, your greatest allies in this hour, in this hour when God is on the move, exposing and tearing down racist and unjust systems. Your greatest allies in this hour may not be other white people. Your greatest allies may be people of other ethnicities who serve the same God that you serve. <laughs> because your people are not always your people. Yes, it's through the blood of one man that we're all related in the human ancestry of mankind. So we're all related, humanly speaking, by the blood of one man, Adam, but by the blood of one lamb, Jesus Christ. Few of us are related in him. And that relation in Christ supersedes any ancestral and ethnic identification and relationship that we'll ever have. That stuff has its place. We don't deny it. God redeems it all. But, we'll, but what's most important is that we're, we're related by the blood of one lamb, Jesus Christ. So Paul couldn't help his friend Trophimus to get help when he was sick. The great apostle who healed other people couldn't heal his friend had to leave him sick in Miletus. I know that broke Paul's heart. Probably was the last time he saw his missionary friend, his, his Gentile homeboy. He had to leave him sick in a place called Miletus. 
And I'm sure it broke Trophimus's heart that he could not stand with Paul in his final days before he would be executed and beheaded under Rome. Paul said, nobody is here with me except Luke. So he's writing to his friends and he writes to Trophim about Trophimus. And these two friends at the end couldn't be there for one another. Couldn't fix their situation or their circumstances. But God led me to that passage to encourage you in this. Live your life in such a way that people of other ethnicities know of your love for them. The Greek Trophimus knew of Paul's love for him. Paul, the Jew, knew of Trophimus's love for him. And although they couldn't be there for each other at, at painful moments of their lives, that's why eternity is something to be looked forward to because they'll be in eternity. They are there now enjoying uninterrupted fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, Matthew chapter 12, Jesus was interrupted while he was teaching. And they said, your mother and your brothers are outside. And Jesus looked around and he said, these are my mother, my brothers, and my sisters. What's he saying? Those who do the will of God, those who love God, they're part of the family of God. Because at that time, Jesus' brothers didn't know Jesus. They didn't know him as Messiah and Savior. They were related ethnically, but not spiritually. And so Jesus prioritized the spiritual family over the natural family by saying these, those who do the will of God, they are my family members. <laughs> so racism can't defeat us. White supremacy cannot defeat us. I close by telling you about Russ Taff, a white gospel singer who sang a song called We Will Stand. That's what we got to do today in this era. Stand and having done all to stand. This is not time to retreat, to run, to turn back, to become timid, fragile. No, this is the time to lean in as the people of God. And in that song, Russ says, you're my brother, you're my sister. So take me by the hand. Together we will work until he comes. There's no foe that can defeat us when we're walking side by side. As long as there is love, we will stand. There's no foe that can defeat us. Not racism, not bigotry, not white supremacy, not hatred, not unforgiveness. Those foes cannot defeat the people of God because we're walking hand in hand in love and in his name. Father, thank you for this word. I pray that it would touch our church and even spread out to the nations. Use my voice and use the lighthouse called Strong Tower Bible Church in this day and hour to be a beacon light of hope to other Christians and other churches around the country. Lord, you've allowed us to walk hand in hand for this long. And we do not want our light under a bushel, but Lord, remove the bushel so that the world can see that there are people who are different racially, who are different politically, who are different economically, who are different theologically, but we are one in Jesus Christ. Let them see, let them know that there are communities around the country 
Though we may be small in number, we are mighty in impact. Let them know that you have several who have not bowed the knee to racism, who have not bowed the knee to institutional racism and white supremacy. No, Lord, we keep our knee on these spirits. and We won't let it up to breathe. Lord, do your work. Dismantle these things in hearts and in structures. Change the world, Lord, for our children. Make it a better place. We're in the last days. And Lord, if you should happen to tarry, change the culture. Just like you did back in the 1800s when my people were, quote unquote, freed. But Lord, we've been fighting systems ever since then. And I know it grieves your heart. It breaks your heart. Lord, I pray that you would give us wisdom personally, corporately, politically on what to do to do the right thing. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Well, we thank God that we are in the kingdom for such a time as this. God makes no mistakes. He has ordered our steps personally and collectively. And I'm so glad to be on the Lord's side today that I'm not fighting against him, but I'm fighting with him and I'm fighting for him. And we rebuke any spirit of fear. We rebuke any shame. We are going forward into the world and into the workplace to let it be known that we live for the Lord, that we love the Lord and we come against evil and injustice in his name. We not only preach the gospel, but we show the gospel. So as you go forward this week, I pray that you would be a city on the hill. I pray that as you go forward this week, that God would allow you to be a minister of love. So let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this opportunity to be together. We thank you, Lord, for the marching orders you have given the church to go into the world and preach the gospel, the good news that you love all people and you made a way for all people to be right with you through the death and resurrection of your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that that message is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Thank you, Lord, that you have included us. And Lord, we go forth in your name to share and show the good news of Jesus Christ. We pray this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Go in peace. Have a great day. Have a great week.